Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. And my name is Michelle Dang. And we'll be your hosts for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Adam and Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing, and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about Indigenous healthcare in Canada. You'll be listening to an interview that Michelle and I did with Dr. Ubaka Ogbagu. Dr. Ogbagu is a professor with both the law and pharmacy faculties at the University of Alberta. We wanted to learn more about the frameworks that govern Indigenous health and how it affects Indigenous peoples today. Let's take a listen. So, my name is Michelle Dang. I am a second-year pharmacy student, and today on the show we have Dr. Ubaka Ogbaku. Dr. Ogbaku was one of my professors. So, one of the lectures we talked about was Indigenous healthcare, and that really got me interested because I think as settlers um, who are going into the healthcare field, there is a responsibility for us to understand what's going on behind the scenes, I guess, and make changes to repair that in the future. So my name is uh, Ubaka Obogo, and I'm uh, an associate professor. I'm cross-appointed to two faculties at the University of Alberta, uh, Law and Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, and I teach a variety of courses in a field known as health law. And that's how uh, Michelle came to know me, and that's how I know Michelle, because I teach a course in the Faculty of Pharmacy called Pharmacy Law and Ethics. And one of the topics I teach in this course is on Indigenous health and the laws that govern Indigenous health. And uh, we talk about a variety of issues affecting Indigenous peoples in relation to how they receive health care and how the legal system is a big part of that. My name is Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. I'm a producer here at Adam and Eve, and I wanted to learn more from Michelle and Ubaka on this topic because I think it's very interesting and that as a settler, we really need to know about how um, these frameworks affect folks differently. So in contrast to Michelle and Dr. Ogbagu, I have very little knowledge in terms of healthcare. Uh, however, I do come from the standpoint of a settler who does want to learn more. Um, I guess my first introduction into a little bit of understanding more about uh, healthcare and indigenous frameworks was when I watched the film um, from Cindy Blackstock and um, Alana Sobomsoen on the film that's about Jordan's principle. So that made me really want to learn more and understand more about this context. So I'm really uh, happy to participate in this discussion and learn more about this topic. First off, just to provide some background on our discussion today, could you please just describe the legal frameworks that govern the healthcare of Indigenous peoples in Canada? Sure. Before we jump into the legal framework, it might be good to contextualize the discussion by actually looking at a story. And it's a story by uh, Tanya Talaga, who's the Indigenous Issues columnist. Uh, and the story is about how uh, Jane Philpott, the former Liberal MP and former Cabinet Minister, uh, who served at some point as the Indigenous uh, Services Minister, how she's been appointed as a special advisor in healthcare to the Nishnabe Aski Nation in Northern Ontario. This is uh, a group of 49 communities that constitute a nation. Why have they done so? Uh, so the story talks about how this is uh, a nation made up of 49 communities that is roughly the size of France, and they have just one hospital. Think about how many hospitals we have in Edmonton. 
think about how many healthcare centers we have in Edmonton. And this is a nation of 49 communities, roughly the size of France, that has just one hospital. The article talks about the fact that healthcare services are nearly non-existent. Uh, children who live there have died of strep throat. There are no qualified healthcare workers, no medications, no mental health care, which has led to desperately high rates of youth suicide. So that's that's what we're talking about, right? This is the is the framework. And somewhere in the article, Tanya Talaga talks about the fact that indigenous health is something that's very different from the health care that uh, non-indigenous Canadians receive. Uh, the way she frames it is that since Canada was formed, there have been two tiers of health care in the country, one for non-indigenous people and one for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. For decades, indigenous people were often turned away from hospitals or given second-rate treatment. One only has to look at the lack of doctors and fully-serviced health clinics in this uh, nation as an example of what goes on across the country. So this is the context that we're dealing with. And that context is largely defined by the legal framework that set it up, under which indigenous people receive not just health care, but a variety of services. You know, I just want to put that out there um, because I, I don't think people, I think when people think about it, they think about, oh, we can imagine that it's not the same for indigenous peoples of Canada, but you just can imagine the scale of it. We're talking about something that if any of us were subject to it, we'll be up in arms. Yeah, thank you for explaining that context, because that's, like you said, that's 49 nations the size of France. So many people that don't have a regular doctor who right. don't have someone to go to when they have something as simple as strep throat. And right. then I imagine as well, an argument some people could make is, oh, why don't those folks just go to somewhere else? Why don't they travel? Right. And then we have to talk about how difficult it is to access that, how difficult it right. is to travel, and et cetera. That has something to do with the legal framework. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the term uh, determinants of health. Uh, so I view law as a determinant of health for indigenous peoples. And it comes back to the way we've set up the law in Canada for how they receive health care. So in essence, the way it works is this. Under the Constitution, the two main levels of government, the federal government and the provincial government, have heads of power that allow them to be able to uh, make laws and act uh, to provide all kinds of things for people under their jurisdiction. So federal powers are distinct from provincial powers and the two don't meet. Healthcare is not specifically mentioned as a head of power. It's a power that's shared between both levels of government, although it is understood that the provinces have the greater role in relation to healthcare. So for many of us, the provinces provide healthcare for us. However, this can lead to as you can imagine, because we have different provinces and territories, this can lead to differences in the quality of healthcare we receive. So the federal government does play a role uh, through something called transfer payments to the provinces. For, in exchange for transfer payments to the provinces, the provinces have agreed to abide by certain obligations and codes that the federal government uh, wants them to meet in order to qualify for these payments. And these uh, requirements are laid out in something called the Canada Health Act. But that's not for persons who are indigenous. Indigenous health is handled largely and primarily by the federal government. So this is the sort of the rough structure of it. Now, the way this has been, this way, the way this works is if you're an indigenous person who lives in an indigenous nation on reserve, the federal government is responsible for your health care. However, if you live off reserve, because of this arrangement they have with the provinces, the provinces will take care of your health care. So there's these jurisdictional uh, differences depending on where you live. 
th- that sort of creates a first problem if you think about it. Uh, if you live on reserve, the federal government, which is the level of government that is furthest away from you, controls and delivers healthcare to you. That then leads to a situation where the healthcare is inevitably substandard and not adequate. Now, the provinces will provide healthcare for persons who live off reserve. The quality of healthcare we receive is better, you know, if we're getting it from the provinces. So if you're an indigenous person who lives off reserve, then presumably you're getting the same level of healthcare that we're getting. However, that forces you to leave your community. But even within our healthcare system in the provincial setup, they face serious discrimination in terms of the healthcare they receive. It's because the law has set it up this way that then leads to this sort of bifurcated way that they receive healthcare and all the problems that come with it. So you had talked about yeah, indigenous folks moving into cities to then get um, access to provincial health care. So someone, let's say, um, that was living on reserve, moving to Edmonton, uh, they would then be able to get a Alberta health care card, correct? No, so it's not even about a health care card, right? Um, if, say, an indigenous person who lives in Edmonton, you're going to have an Alberta health care card, you're going to be able to access the system. What you face as an indigenous person in Edmonton is discrimination in terms of how you receive those services. That's coming from your contacts with the healthcare system. The issue, though, is if you don't live in Edmonton. You talked about Jordan's principle, right? That's a case that kind of illustrates this very nicely. So Jordan has this condition for which there's no healthcare in the community where this kid was growing up. So they actually had to move out of their community into the city to be able to access healthcare. So you leave your community. That comes with a whole lot of baggage. And then when you move, that's where the questions start to arise. Who pays for that? The provinces will say, our deal with the federal government is they take care of you because you live on reserve. You've come in here now. We're not treating you unless we have some guarantee of payment for the service, right? Uh, So they pass the buck to the federal government. The federal government passes it it back saying, you have now moved to Edmonton, so they should be taking care of it. And that passing the buck was what led to Jordan dying in the hospital. And that's what led to that uh, Jordan's principle, which is this idea that if it involves an indigenous child trying to access a service, whoever is asked first gets to pay for it, and then you guys can sort yourselves out later. But the, the basic problem remains, which is this is a factor that will force you to leave your community because it's been set up in a way that, unlike the rest of us who are non-indigenous, who know the level of government responsible legally for our health care, Indigenous persons are never sure what level of government to turn to. Mm -hmm. And just with the Canada Health Act, so the five main principles is that it has to be publicly administered, Mm -hmm. comprehensive, universal, portable, and accessible. Yes. So the fact that they have to be moving to actually have access to healthcare that everyone should be able to have is just... Right. And so that's that's the... So Canada Health Act is a piece of legislation as well. It's law. Mm -hmm. This notion that I can wake up and if I have a healthcare problem, I can access services and I don't have to think about paying, about moving. I don't think about any of these things. All of that comes from the Canada Health Act, right? Now, that's not to say that everyone has access. I mean, there's all kinds of groups that face access problems. It's not the same level as indigenous peoples of Canada face because they don't have the benefit of the same thing that the Canada Health Act guarantees to the rest of us, which is that these two levels of government will cooperate to provide what is really one of the best healthcare systems in the world? So it's somewhat ridiculous that the federal government cares enough for the rest of us to get enter into a deal where they ensure that the provinces have enough money to guarantee those five things. 
to think that the people to whom this country actually belong to don't have those standards of services, that's set up by, by the law. I'm curious, when was the Canada Health Act uh, implemented? It was adopted in 1984. So it's been around for a long time. And, you know, that's only one piece of it. If you're thinking about healthcare, and especially if you're thinking about healthcare from an Indigenous perspective, you're thinking about wellness. You're thinking about connection to your traditions, your cultural heritage, you, you know, your community. You're thinking about concepts of healthcare that, are, that don't involve the kinds of things we think about healthcare, which is, you know, curative as opposed to preventative. You know, there's a huge emphasis in Indigenous health on concepts of care that are not part of what we think of healthcare in a general sense. Uh, and there's also social determinants of health and just determinants of health generally. There's a whole host of things that Indigenous people face in Canada that affect their healthcare. So you can think about, you know, the biggest one, racism, and the huge impact it has on their healthcare. You can think about uh, this reserve system, think about residential schools, you know, foster parenting system and all of that stuff that happened and which kept happening up until the 90s and which is still happening today that impacts your health care. You can think about the fact that many indigenous communities in Canada today don't have clean drinking water. There's a whole lot of things going on that affect your health care that you could address, but none of this is actually being addressed in a satisfactory manner. And all of this is rooted in, you know, a piece of legislation called the Indian Act, which is the heart of racism against indigenous people in Canada, uh, and which continues to be in existence. Yeah, I see the Indian Act and colonialism in Canada in general, the foundation of Canada as an act of colonialism and genocide. And this just makes me feel that uh, the laws and the way that the Canada Health Act works for Indigenous people now is contributing to Indigenous genocide. It's a huge factor, for sure. Um, of course, there are no easy answers to a thing like that. And I'm not qualified to, you know, comment on the answers. I don't want to speak for Indigenous nations and communities and peoples of Canada. However, my sense is that the law is a big contributor, and I think most people would agree with this. Uh, but I also think if a, a, an effective solution lies in changing the laws as well. One of the things that former Minister Phil Pot has been charged with doing is seeing if there's a way to structure this better so that the, this nation have the resources to take care of their own health care. There's no reason why two levels of government that don't actually have not just the willing the, the willingness, uh, but the good knowledge regarding how to fix this should be fixing it. Indigenous nations and people should, when they want, be given the means to control their own health care, how to deal with it, how to deliver it. You know, as a starting point would be provide the resources. Why is the federal government providing health care from Ottawa? Give them access to the resources so they can decide how to run their nations. Uh, and what I'm suggesting here is sovereignty, not just uh, over healthcare, but over the me- control of resources. So that's where the BC Health Advisory comes in, right? That's the sort of the best example we have right now. Uh, so the First Nations Health Authority is an initiative that was born out of an arrangement between the federal government, the BC government, and the First Nations of British Columbia. And the idea behind this arrangement is Rather than continue with this system that I've said does not work, and rather than tell you how to operate your own healthcare, we're just going to resource it, and we're going to allow you form a health authority that provides healthcare to the First Nations peoples of British Columbia on terms that you decide. 
this First Nations Health Authority has been set up as the, the first and only province-wide First Nations-run uh, health authority. So if you think of Abata Health Services, it's sort of similar. That just makes me think of the land back movement. I will quote my good friend, Rani Mugman. She was saying for me, land back doesn't just mean like getting my land back, but it means getting my, the way that we traditionally do our medicines, the way we teach our children, the way that we educate. We need everything back to having without this colonial framework and going back to the way that we traditionally lived our lives. And if you give these resources to First Nations, like you described, that is the best way. That's the best success rate. And I don't want to speak out of turn, but in relation to health, it seems sensible at least to say we have failed. It is very clear on the evidence that Canada as a country has failed to deliver health care to indigenous peoples wherever they might live in Canada. And so with that alone, if you're doing something and you're not succeeding and you're not doing it well, it stands to reason that you stop doing it. It is also very clear that even for indigenous peoples who leave their communities and you know who live in Edmonton, that when they face the healthcare system, they encounter a ton of effects that no one should have to face. And so it's clear if, if these two levels of government can't get their act together to make it work. And I, my, my sense is they never will because it's been set up so badly and you need a, an entire overhaul of the system and then you need to sort of re-educate people and they don't want to put the blame of the colonialism and racism on the government's door. You know, we all are complicit in it. And there's a ton of change of perspective and societal re-education you have to do to get us there. But... But a good starting point would be to say, we're not doing this well. Let's go to these communities and ask them, how can we begin to fix this? And then when they say to us, as this nation is saying, we want access to our resources, we should listen to that and make that happen. It's clear in my mind that that, that is the approach we should take. It's just I don't think, you know, um, people are sensitized enough to this. Up until recently, up until, you know, the TRC report, there's very few non-Indigenous Canadians you'll talk to who are even aware of the history of this nation as it, relate, as it relates to Indigenous peoples. Uh, after TRC, I think we have defaulted to tokens, if you will, of awareness or participation or involvement in the issue. You know? So you know, we now know how to say our land acknowledgement. <laughs> you know, we all now know how to talk about how we perhaps are listening or feeling about the issue. But I am, I'm starting to suspect that that's where it ends. I don't think there's enough of us who react to this issue the way we should react to it. Uh, and I'm guilty of that as well. You know, I, I'm exposed to this information by virtue of what I do. Most of the time, we feel powerless to do this. And it's true, individuals may not have the means to effect these systemic changes, but at least we can force our governments to do so. We can at least try to make them do so. We, we can make this an election issue. We can care more about it. Uh, one of the things that disappointed me was, you know, how at the last election was how so much uh, people so were worried about, oh, we don't want this party in, or we don't want that party in, and they were failing to listen to the parties that were saying we need to care more about indigenous issues. I thought it was the election issue. I voted on that issue. I can't do anything individually to make any kind of lasting or significant systemic change. But my vote is powerful, and I'm not going to use it just so I can get tax savings of Two hundred dollars to a thousand dollars—that's ridiculous. I'm going to use it for issues that are beyond me. If more people cared about it in this way, then maybe next time you do a land acknowledgement, it will not ring hollow because you also are trying to do something 
Yeah, I think like as settlers, we already have that responsibility to understand and to inflict change on what's going on right now. But then again, as healthcare providers who are actually taking care of people, there's just even more added responsibility, and you can't pretend that you don't know these things. Yeah, and I and, I, and again, I think uh, one of the things that I have done because I I serve on health boards and I've I've taken courses to educate me about how indigenous peoples of Canada encounter the healthcare system and the kinds of things that they face. And this, I think this, those courses should be mandatory for all healthcare workers. We need to increase the presence of courses that teach this in our curriculum. Um, we need to increase the presence of indigenous scholars in our universities. It shouldn't be viewed as a matter of tokenism. You know, we don't want to hire one for every faculty. You actually want to make sure you have them well integrated into the numbers of people who instruct at this university. There's a, a, a number of things you could do to start to change this, I think. It also makes me think of the article that you read at the beginning, and especially the fact that it was written by an Indigenous person, I think is really important because if you have Indigenous reporters, if you have Indigenous uh, folks in the newsrooms that are reporting on these issues, then those issues get uh, in the news and they're reported on in the right way. Yeah, you know, the, the way you solve a problem that has so many legs, it's so multifaceted. You don't, you don't solve it by, with one fix. What you need is a solution or are solutions that match the problem. But you also need sort of the willingness to be able to sort of acknowledge that as an issue. Now, the TRC report is a good starting point, uh, and I, I would really encourage all your listeners. I think, you know, nobody should leave university without reading the TRC report. I don't care what department you're in. It summarizes in a nice way the history, the issues, and what is at least part of the way forward. Uh, and so reading that and then asking yourself, what is the one thing I can do to begin to reverse all of this? And the one thing you, you pick has to be something that you know is achievable. There's, there's a tendency when you, know, you confront so this kind of information for the first time to just go, oh my God, this is bigger than me and I can't really help it. But we all can chip in in all kinds of ways. But I think, you know, primarily we need to make our government change the law to create a system that is at least, at least equivalent to what we as non-Indigenous Canadians receive. It makes me think of uh, Leanne Betismoke uh, Simpson's talk. She talks about how we see reconciliation as this break in a cycle of saying, oh, we had this cycle of violence, but now there's reconciliation. But she says, you know, these cycles that we see is, um, you know, displaced land and then uh, folks speaking up about it and then land offenders and then um, a government saying, oh, we're doing reconciliation. And then the cycle repeats itself and it goes back with more silencing dissent. Um, it really, um, I think, was important for me for understanding that what we think of as reconciliation reconciliation within the government or what we see as these big changes are really just part of a cycle of violence that continues and perpetuates. Yeah, I, and I mean, I, it's, no, it's no easy issue. Um, but I, I think the thing that really disappoints me is when you look to youth, you, you kind of want them to get the proper education so that when they get to the point where they could do something, they're sensitized to the issue and they know how to think about it and they know how to make decisions if they get into positions of power about how to affect a change that is meaningful. But as you noted, our educational system has not quite come to, to grips with actually this notion of reconciliation and promoting learning about indigenous issues. And so I fear that the next generation is also quite as ignorant about these issues. And that's actually what disappoints me because at the end of the day, it shouldn't take the fact that my job requires it for me to know about this. It should be sort of foundational learning 
for for anyone who's in this country and who's growing up in this country. If the young people end up not knowing about it, they're just going to repeat the same mistakes that we're making, which is not being in touch with the issue and not caring enough about it enough to make any kind of change or create any kind of difference. Yeah, in terms of solutions too, I would also uh, reference Chelsea Vowell, who talks about uh, yeah reconciliation and saying, again, we're Indigenous people, we're here. If you want to know how to make life better, ask us. Ask us yeah. yeah, and I think that's key. You know, one, one thing you could do is have uh, more representation in the halls of power. It really requires, you know, non-Indigenous Canadians saying we're going to pull back so we can, we can yield some of that space. I think it's good if we care about, of course it's good if we care about indigenous issues and care about issues of our day, but it's even better if we care enough about it to take to the streets. So I, I want young people of today to care about something I call governing from the margins. If you think about how you should govern, most of the time we care about the issues that people who are in the you know, sort of penumbra, in the, in the core, care about. Or we could think about governing from the margins. We could ask ourselves, what do the most disadvantaged people in our society really care about and want? And can we start to govern from those? I would like to see that as the philosophy that we abide by. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for sharing your knowledge. You just heard our interview with Dr. Ubaka Ogbagu about Indigenous healthcare in Canada. We wanted to talk more about the Medicine Chest Clause, which is specifically in Treaty 6 territory, the land that we are on today. As quoted on Wikipedia, one of the selling points of the treaty was that a medicine chest would be kept at the home of the Indian agent for use by the people. The Medicine Chest Clause has been interpreted by Indigenous leaders to mean that the federal government has an obligation to provide all forms of health care to First Nations people on an ongoing basis. Yeah, so I think what's really, I think what's really interesting in the statement that you just read, uh, Michelle, was that even in the days of when there were Indian agents, the fact that the Indian agents would be the people who would keep this and that they were the ones responsible shows that even back when this was happening, that um, yeah, medicines were kept away from Indigenous peoples. They were kept by the Indian agents. So therefore not giving that agency to folks who were supposed to have access to these medicines. And I think that's also an ongoing thing. You see that uh, healthcare is in the hands of the federal government right now. So again, it all goes back to giving um, indigenous peoples the resources, um, the help or the support they need to determine their own healthcare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it just shows how colonialism is in different forms, but it has, you know, it, it looks different throughout history. However, colonialism is still very much present and still very much is the reason why healthcare for First Nations folks is at a different level of care than for non-Indigenous folks. So thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode on Indigenous healthcare in Canada. If you wanted to learn more about this topic, we would recommend looking up the works of Cindy Blackstock and following her on Twitter at C-B-L-A-C-K-S-T. You can also check out the BC First Nations Health Authority and their work at www.fnha.ca. We've come to the end of this week's episode of Adam and Eve, Edmonton's only feminist news radio program. 
Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CGSR, 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6 territory. For more information on our program, please contact us on our Facebook page under Adam and Eve. You can find all of our previous episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and any platform of your choice. Thank you very much for tuning in, and thanks to Dr. Ubaka Ogbaku for joining in on this discussion with us. We've been your hosts, Michelle Dang and Rose Eva Forks-Jenkins. Have an adamant evening! evening.